Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to Talking Tudors episode 116 and the first of our All Things Tudor Queens and Consorts series. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As this is the first episode of the month, I'd like to begin by thanking the wonderful patrons who continue to support this podcast and welcome patrons who joined the Talking Tudors family in June. A very warm welcome to Leslie, Becca, Jenna and Elle Swan. I'm so very grateful for your immense generosity and support. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. July's prize is an amazing Tudor book bundle, which includes the following titles. Forgotten Queens in Medieval and Early Modern Europe, edited by Dr. Valerie Schutte and Dr. Estelle Paronk. Mary I and the Art of Book Dedications by Dr. Valerie Schutte, and Dr. Schutte's latest book, only very recently released, Princesses Mary and Elizabeth Tudor and the Gift Book Exchange. A huge thank you to Dr. Schutte for sponsoring this wonderful prize. Now, on to today's episode, which is all about Elizabeth I. I'm thrilled that joining me for this first episode in our All Things Tudor Queens and Consult series is the absolutely brilliant Dr. Estelle Paronk. Dr. Peronk is an assistant professor in early modern and public history at New College of the Humanities, part of the Northeastern University Global Network. She has published extensively on Elizabeth I, Catherine de' Medici, French kings and consorts. She's the author of Elizabeth I of England through Valois Eyes and Blood, Fire and Gold, the story of Elizabeth I and Catherine de' Medici, forthcoming in June 2022. My conversation with Estelle straight after this short musical break, courtesy of the singer-songwriter Carleen. The very moving song, Elizabeth's Lullaby, is from the Ballad of Anne Boleyn, Carleen's best-selling album inspired by the life of Henry VIII's second queen consort, Anne Boleyn.
Welcome back to Talking Tutors, Estelle. How are you? Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm very good. How are you, Natalie? I'm good. Thank you. I'm so excited. It's been such a long time since you were on the show, which is why I would absolutely love you to introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us all a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm Dr. Estelle Paronk. Uh, I'm the author of A Little Bit of the First of England Through Valois Eyes, 
I consider myself uh, as an expert, obviously on Elizabeth the First, but also on Queens more broadly and on Catherine de Medici. This year, I've been writing a book on uh, the story of Elizabeth and Catherine uh, called Blood, Fire, and Gold. So it will be out next year. So I hope like people will get excited. <laughs> as excited as I am actually. <laughs> I really loved uh, writing this book. It was um, very, um, a, a new challenge. It was also like um, very exciting to do, like to write not in an academic way, but write like for um, a general audience. So I really, really enjoyed that. I am um, an assistant professor in history uh, at the New College of the Humanities, part of Northeastern uh, University Global Network. And yes, that that is me, you know, historian, author, and just, you know, like trying to make my way through this world. <laughs> yeah, an all-round wonderful person, I would add to that, Estelle, definitely. And I'm I'm particularly excited about your book. The the title's amazing and I know it's gonna be just fantastic. So I'm ready to pre-order. So make sure you send me the pre-order link when it's out. Oh my god, I will send you a copy, Natalie. <laughs> oh, thank you, darling. Thank you. Now the topic for today's All Things Tudor Queens and Consults discussion is Elizabeth the First. So I think we should dive right in. Now Estelle, Elizabeth endured a, a turbulent childhood, and I would love for you to talk to, to us about her early years and maybe some of those struggles and those challenges that she faced growing up. That's actually uh, also part of my book. Is like I, I, The first part of my book discussed that, and so I think that it, it's quite good that you asked me this question because I, I've written about it a bit. Yes, it, it, you have to imagine. I think that you know the, the, the story of Elizabeth is so intertwined with obviously the story of a mother that you love so much, Anne Boleyn. You know, when we have the fall of Anne Boleyn, in many ways, we have the fall of Princess Elizabeth Tudor. And, you know, I, I, I usually don't really like to make those kind of comparisons or like to try to put like modern views into something that is so long in the past. But at the same time, having said that, <laughs> I think it's quite important to remember that these people were human beings, that they had feelings. And as historians, we also love delving into, you know, these feelings and trying to understand what must have happened. So here we have to imagine the three-year-old three little girl had just lost her mother. And I'm pretty sure, you know, like, and I'm sure you'll know more about this than me but there was a strong bond between Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth and I'm sure that also like um I mean she was not just you know oh you can look after my daughter and I don't care you know she was really hands-on and really wanted to to be there for her so you can imagine then when that happened I think it created a massive shift in Elizabeth's life at such a young age I think that it uh, created I, I think obviously I, I don't know how much we don't know how much Elizabeth um remembered we can imagine that it was the first trauma then you have to imagine that she was obviously like um you know someone was looking after her lady brian and then that lady brian was going to have to leave her as well because she had to look after the the young prince you know a year later or you know yeah i think it's a year later or something so um she's lost two maternal figures or two people that were really close to her was then with Kat Ashley, you know, she was raised by Kat Ashley. And then we have so many letters where she was not, you know, uh, the clothes were not appropriate day. She was growing out of it. Like she, she, she didn't receive the care that she should have received. She was also cast away from court because obviously her name was associated with the fall 
of the bolens, right, of, of what happened to that family. And there's obviously a documentary, you know, uh, that's going to be soon uh, uh, on BBC about this. So, and I'm sure it will be then everywhere on, on the web. So please watch it. But so you really have this story of the, the young little girl who's little by little losing all these important women. And then there's Kat Ashley, who's obviously going to be there. And then she's going to be reinstated at court. And she's going to grow up with, you know, with her brother, with her half-brother, Edward. But you cannot completely disregard these young years and these traumas. I think that from the very beginning, it made a shift in Elizabeth's mind that she, she wanted or not. And that is going to create the personality she's going to have later. You see what I mean? Like, I think when you were hurt so young and so badly, it's not something that you, you forget later on in your life. Absolutely. You know, I totally agree with you. And I think that that her mother's execution left quite a, a deep void in her that, of course, continued throughout her life. And, and not to mention the loss of stepmothers after that, <laughs> quite a lot of stepmothers after that. So that yeah. must have been traumatic too. Yeah, complete, well, completely. But also, you know, like, it's, I wonder how much she would have been close to some of her stepmothers. I think we're, we're going to, you know, discuss one in particular very soon. So I don't want to, to really disclose that now. But I think that um, you, you're right. But it, so it really shows it's about, you know, being in favour, falling out of favour. And she was in the midst of the Enrician court when everything was unstable. You know, like 1536 is a year. And I really, I love actually Susanna Lipscomb's book on 1536, you know, the year that changed Henry VIII. I think it's the year that changed everything. You know, I think there was some form in a way of, of stability, even if you can, it's difficult to consider a divorce to Catherine of Aragon, which I really love as well, um, you know, uh, um, as stable. But in a way, it doesn't go completely, you know, crazy like it did later on, like the death of Jane Seymour was so abrupt, so so shocking. Then Anne of Cleves would happen, though she actually had a nice life. I mean, honestly, she, you know, Anne of Cleves is, is one of the winners, you know, of, of Henry VIII in a way. But then Catherine Howard, like this poor young girl, I, I feel really much for, for Catherine Howard a lot. Um, 15 year old, you know, girl used as a pawn for me. Like, this is how I see her. And and uh, and I love the book, um, Ritha Warnaki. Wicked Women of England, and it's a brilliant book that really is very good, I think, and a fair representation of Catherine Howard uh, that I would uh, really recommend to you all. It's, it's, it's really great, and I think it exists in paperback, so it shouldn't be too expensive as well. So, you know, yeah, it's very good for everyone. But yes, you, you're right, and for Elizabeth, I think being in the middle of all of this uh, shaped her mentality, not, not just, you know, not just about marriage. I don't, I don't really... I think we'll discuss that later about marriage, the question of marriage, but it's a difficult one to answer. It's a difficult one to answer because I, I don't think it's one thing or one event or succession of events that, that created a shift in her, but I think it's, it's also her personality, her own desire and her own love for power because power is security. Power was like giving her security, which is something she liked a lot when she was young. Yes. And, and basically from the get-go, she was known for her erudition, her intelligence, you know, her wit and her many talents. Do we know very much, this is such a turbulent time, but do we know very much about her formal education? We, we do have like very good sources. When she was reinstated at court with um, Edward, she, um, she was very close to her brother. I think that's, some, that's also why I have a grudge on, <laughs> on Edward a bit, because I think that both his sister, both 
his half sisters, Mary and Elizabeth, were quite good to him when he was young. And I think he completely forgot that when he became king. And I'm like, and, and to me, it's a bit like, are you kidding me? Like you lost your mother, but you had two, you know, half sisters who were like there for you. And you actually have like, you know, almost like um, a, a family unit, you know, like it was created at some point, especially with Catherine Parber, where, you know, there was kind of a loving relationship and everything's going to, Anyway, that's my little grudge on Edward. But but what happened for Elizabeth is that because she had Edward and she, you know, they got on really well, she was assigned the same tutors, uh, not not for everything, but some of them were were exactly the same. So William Grindle, like, uh, you know, he was an English scholar. He was really well known. Um, So he started the education of Edward and Elizabeth. And then it was Roger uh, Asham. And he was also like very good for her. And actually, Roger was the one who wrote the schoolmasters. He, he, he was writing his memoirs. And there he praised Elizabeth for intelligence, for her skills with languages. She was learning very fast. She was actually learning faster than Edward. It doesn't mean that Edward was not very smart, not very intelligent. I think he really was too. But Elizabeth really, and I don't know if it's because she was much better or because it was surprising for women. Yeah. yeah, at that time to be like, oh my God, you're not stupid. How <laughs> wonderful. You know, uh, or, but it, uh, saying that, you know, in a way, Mary was also extremely intelligent. And so uh, she was extremely praised, extremely praised by her tutors as well. So I think the three Tudor children were very smart and intelligent. But for Elizabeth, it was true. She, she was speaking different languages. So obviously French. Uh, Spanish, Italian, obviously Latin and Greek, but she also had like a knowledge of other languages. I think she loved languages. You can see also like in the translations where she's going to do later on in her life, her interest in religion as well, her interest in like in the humanities, you know, um, and humanist humanist ideas. Uh, so I think, uh, yeah, Elizabeth was, was quite something at a very young age. But what really also, I think where she, she played really well, and I think there's always a clash with her, personality when she was young with a clash with her personality when she's gonna become queen and I think it's because she was hiding it so you have someone so humble so modest she would you know be always you know obedient extremely obedient you take Elizabeth throughout her young younger years even under Mary the first and we will I know we're also going to talk about this but you have like very much this very discreet young person, even Charles de Marillac, French ambassador, 1537, was saying that the second daughter was almost invincible. Like no one really saw her at court because, uh, and, 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 he, and he said it's probably because of the story of her mother, she wants to remove herself from any drama, any scandal. But what's very interesting is that obviously that was not a real personality. Uh, you see it later like yeah. uh, I, I love her so much like I try to tell my students sometimes why do, they were like why do you love her so much I'm like because she lost her temper <laughs> because sometimes she screamed because sometimes she she like she threw her slippers across the room to someone who annoyed her you know and I'm not like this and I won't do that to my students or to anyone if you want you know a signed book you can I will never slap you <laughs> but uh, but it's quite I love the kind of like passion I love I think I love her flaws I think yeah. that's what I love with Elizabeth I think it's 
I'm more interested in her flaws and I love her flaws more than I actually love her qualities because I, I think her flaws are part of her qualities, re resilience, yeah. determination, strength. It comes from fire. It doesn't come from someone who's like, oh, I'm always going to be quiet. It comes from someone who's like, I'm going to fight for my life. I'm going to survive. I'm going to just, and when she was in survival mode, she was like, keep it quiet, keep it quiet, keep it quiet. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah, and I think that that's why she's so amazing. Yeah, they're really interesting points. It's it's almost like she she had the ability to to raise a facade up when it was required. When, as you say, it was about her survival, and then later on, this comes crashing down in many different ways, which is which is so interesting. Totally agree and with you. It was, it was a surprise for people who had known her for years. You know, like uh, William Cecil. I'm sure that he's, you know, he's known her when she was younger, and she didn't do it qu too quickly when she became queen. But yeah. she did <laughs> rapidly from 1562 after her smallpox and stuff. Like she's already starting to be feisty with, with you know, with Catherine. She's already starting to be feisty with the Parliament in 50s. 1567 she dissolved the parliament i mean we have a woman who's not taking shit here like yeah. i just love it absolutely love it now you mentioned earlier when you were talking about elizabeth's earlier years cat ashley of course which which is a, a prominent feature in her life who else do you think were the the most important people in elizabeth's childhood and her adolescence and and how in particular do you think they influenced the elizabeth growing up or the young elizabeth I th so I think she was extremely influenced by, you know, she was close to Edward. I think she was close to Mary to some extent. I think that once Mary, like um, Elizabeth, both lost her mother. I think like once the three siblings no longer have a mother, that's when like they become very close to one another because, you know, um, they only have one another in a way. So I think they influenced each other at that time. But obviously like the person, in, 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 you know, in and kind of like discussed another question, you know, that we want to, another topic more or less that we want to discuss. But the person who has really influenced Elizabeth during her young age is Catherine Parr. And I didn't realize until I wrote my book, so Blood, Fire and Gold, that how much, I didn't realize how much. And I think it, well, maybe it was naive of me to think that it was just about, um, oh, the education and the fact that Catherine um, was very well educated she was reading a lot she was really interested in religion I don't think you know I, I think that yes of course th there's this part of of influence I think also Catherine uh, was the one who was like even pushing even more Elizabeth towards like humanist ideas and the reformed ideas also telling her your mother herself you know had this book from Marguerite de Navarre and you know um so maybe you would want to translate it but and so obviously you have a young princess that wants to please like um her stepmother so I thought that that it was it I thought that was just this kind of erudition that was you know where Elizabeth was completely mesmerized by a woman who could write because we know that Catherine Park wrote right she she wrote the first book and she wrote she, she and she and she loved it you know having this space and she created this space for her at court but she didn't just do that um i can't really remember each year now but um she was made regent when henry VIII went to war and i didn't realize how much it would actually influence elizabeth but then you had to reflect on the fact you know on the sources obviously i don't have a letter of elizabeth saying oh my god i've been so influenced by um, 
Daphne Park. And it's where historians have to do like, you know, we have like pieces of puzzle and we have to put them together to make sense of something. And actually Catherine Parr was in the Privy Council. She was not regent on her own, she, there were other people, but, but you realize that she was having a voice that she used more and more and she made decisions. They were obviously supported by other men. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that Catherine Parr was like the only one ruling and, and Henry VIII completely trusted her. But Henry VIII did that with Catherine of Aragon as well, like, you know, as a regent. And so in a way when he, you know, he, he trusted some of his wives and, and it may, and I don't know where would Adbolin would have, you know, where she would have like kind of fallen into. I don't know, honestly, I don't know. I think it was more passionate a relationship than a, than a tr- trustful, like, you know, truthful in a way relationship. So, but with Catherine Parr, Elizabeth was like 10 or so, and she realized that a woman could be in charge. Even if a woman was to, still had to, again, and that's why it's so interesting, even if a woman still had to listen to men, like privy councillors, you know. She could not completely not care about what they were saying. She, I'm sure that she was influenced by the ways in which Catherine Parr managed to get what she wanted to support her husband at war, how she made the decisions and how she can flattered one man, gone to, you know, making sure that the other one would agree with her. And while at the same time asserting a certain authority, because at the end of the day, she was the queen. And, and I never put that together to how he could have influenced a young girl who probably at that time never thought she would ever become queen. But with Elizabeth, there's something that we need to remember. She was extremely observant, extremely, extremely observant. It's something that she shared actually with Catherine de Medici, extremely, and both of them have played the same game. Humility, obedient, until you have power. When you have power, you can drop the mask and say, (laughs) that is not true. (laughs) You know, you thought I was easygoing. Think again. <laughs> you know, a bit like with a marriage. I don't know. I'm gonna scare someone. Yeah, you're gonna scare someone. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, you know what? I think I think it's a bit like that. You know, like and with Elizabeth, you really have. And I didn't realize how much you must have observed and learned, Catherine Parr. So I would say that Catherine Parr is probably the the person who has most influenced. Elizabeth when she was young because Catherine Parr is also like an example of resilience determination obedience as well which probably like she didn't like you know so much when she but that was very healthy to survive as a woman in the 16th century you had to learn the games and the rules of the games and I think Catherine Parr was excellent with the rules of the game yeah that's so fascinating I that's the same I never really thought about it long enough to to make all those connections. So that was really, really fascinating. Now we were talking before about obviously the stepmothers. And of course, now you've you've discussed the fact that she was very close with Catherine Parr. What were there any of the others that she you think she made a connection with or it wasn't really long enough, not enough time perhaps? You know what? I don't think she had like some people might say Catherine Howard because you know she was family, like there were family connections. I don't think so. I don't think like Elizabeth was interested enough and I think that Catherine Howard, in a way, screamed drama, in a way, you know, like a young queen. Uh, we know that she, has, she had difficulties with Mary. So I think Elizabeth was trying to stay away from any, as I said, during her young years, she's trying to stay away from drama and scandal, which is going to change, obviously, because she's going to be drawn into um, drama and scandal. But yeah, so, um, so yeah, so I would say, no, I would say Catherine Parr. Catherine Parr is definitely 
the one that she remained close to. I think there was some some uh, closeness or she liked Anne of Cleves or I can't and now, now I'm wondering if it's Mary who liked Anne of Cleves instead of Elizabeth which you know because she was obviously older so yeah, yeah. Bit, uh, but I think Anne of Cleves was really nice with her royal children so that that might be a possibility but I don't think there was this kind of closeness that you have with Catherine Parr. Okay, excellent. Now I want to move well move forward in time into the reign of Mary the First, or Elizabeth's half sister. Now, what was life like for Elizabeth during her half sister's reign? And can you tell us a little bit about the events that, in fact, led to Elizabeth being imprisoned in the Tower and then um, living under house arrest for quite some time? You know what? I think it's a very um, sad part of of, of um, Elizabeth's life, and of, and in many ways of Mary's life. Lots of people would think that because I, I really like Elizabeth, well, I love Elizabeth, let's face it, I'm not, I can't hide it anymore. I, um, I don't like Mary Tudor. That's not true. I really like Mary the First uh, for different reasons. I think she's mostly misunderstood. And and um, and also, you know, like the book Crown of Blood by Nicola Tallis, yes. the way she, she showed like the struggle of, that Mary was going through before, you know, agreeing to the execution of Lady Jane Grey showed a bit of humanity and a bit of like how it was not easy for Mary to to make that decision so we, we're gonna we're gonna talk about this obviously but first of all I would like us to remember that that when Edward VI died Mary and Elizabeth were more or less on good terms so when uh, there's the problem with Lady Jane Grey when uh, Elizabeth is going to be 100% behind her sister they're going to arrive together in London, you know, uh, Tower of London with the um, old gate gate, like, you know, um, and they're going to arrive together and the city of London is going to claim the, the, the Tudor sisters. And she's 100% respecting her sister's royal authority. Uh, in a way, she's doing nothing because she, she cannot, you know, if, if you start questioning, and that's why Mary didn't, if you start questioning her blood, then you're questioning yours, because obviously, you know, they're both daughters of Henry VIII. So but they had to be both careful in, in what they were saying, what doing. But you have kind of a united two sisters at the beginning. But because of what happened with also Lady Jane Grey, and it's not just what happened. So Lady Jane Grey was put, you know, I don't, I don't think she, she, and again, read, I think the best book on, on Lady Jane Grey is Crown of Blood by Nicola Tallis. I really love this book. At first, I have to say, at first I was like, the first three chapters, I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm not getting into it. But if you feel that way, please continue, because I promise you, because once you get like the three first chapters where you feel there's so many information, so many words, like so many names, blah, 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 I'm getting a bit bored, if I'm honest. I'm sorry, Nicola, I love you, but you know. But then once you pass the, the, the third chapter, my God, it's a page turner. You're like, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> you're like, she, and, 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 and you treat, your brain tricks you. You think she's not going to kill her. Like it's, it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant book. And you learn so much about the, like, the struggle of Lady Jane Grey, which is like the main character of the book. But also the struggle of Mary the First, and shows you like her as a as a human being, and and she and Mary Mary doesn't want to execute her cousin. So a, a first lady Jane Grey is obviously imprisoned, but then Mary made the decision to um, marry her cousin Philip the Second of Spain, and this is where everything kind of like start for Elizabeth because people are starting to say, oh my God, we don't want foreign prince to become king of England and you have the rebellion of led by Thomas Wyatt and Thomas Wyatt is obviously going to try to get a protestant queen on the throne and it's really about catholicism but is it really about catholicism and protestantism or is it about 
power? Is it about like, we don't want foreign power? You know, like sometimes I feel like we, we're so kind of like obsessed with the division between Protestant and Catholicism that sometimes we don't really realize that it's more or less about power and who's in power and is in power than, it, you know, than the religion itself. I think the religion is mostly an excuse. So suspicions are gonna, you know, are starting to, to, to arise uh, against Elizabeth. And it's mostly uh, Simon Renard, you know, um, the Spanish ambassador who's gonna be like, or um, Holy Roman um, uh, ambassador, like, but you know, like the, that part. Yeah, Imperial, uh, yeah. Yeah, Imperial, thank you. The Imperial ambassador that is going to be like really against Elizabeth and it's gonna try to trick Mary. First of all, you need to execute Lady Jane Grey. Second of all, you need to execute your sister. So she's gonna to agree to imprison Elizabeth. And this is definitely one of the hardest times for Elizabeth, because I think you have to imagine again that these two women had more or less, like they had a childhood together. Once Elizabeth lost her, like I'm not saying, you know, that everything was pink and roses and beautiful, you know, it's not what I'm saying, but what I'm saying is that it's, there were still, there were moments between them. I'm sure that we don't, we, we cannot, as historians, when we look at 500 years ago, we are missing, you know, oral history. We are missing, like, we don't have witnesses. We don't, we, but I am 100% sure that we have very, very close and intimate moments between the two mm -hmm. sisters when they were young. And even under Edward's reign and, and how difficult it is for both of them, one because of the scandal with Thomas Seymour over the other one because of Catholicism and, and, she, and, and she sees her. Basically, Edward VI turns into a little brat, right? It's like, he's super annoying. He just wants to slap him. And Mary's probably, I'm your godmother. I looked after you. Now you're shitting on me. Like, you, you know, so you can imagine that the two sisters are like struggling, you know, with their own stories. But in a way, they're not, they're still together, right? You know, though, though I think Mary's resented a bit Elizabeth for, um, you know, Again, Elizabeth always played that game, very obedient, very humble, very quiet. So she did that with Edward as well. I'm very Protestant. She was shown at court. Mary was cast away from court, you know. So maybe she resented her, but I don't think to the point where there was a real, you know, drift between them. I don't yeah. think there was that happening. So you have to imagine for Elizabeth that when it happened, she supported her sister. She didn't support Lady Jane Grey. She was not stupid. Not that you would be stupid for supporting Lady Jane Grey, but you would be in a way because especially when you have Tudor blood, you would be completely stupid to, yeah. <laughs> to do that to yourself. So yeah, but um, uh, and she was not. And so I think that it's a huge betrayal. It's a huge betrayal. And also we have the story where Elizabeth like asked made Mary promise her that if anyone told her anything bad about her, that she would give her an audience to have the chance to explain herself. So we really have here, like, again, a, a, you know, a teenager, a young adult at the Tower of London, where she exactly knows where it, it was the end of her mother. She knows exactly where Anne Boleyn was executed. She could see it. Her cousin was just executed as well. And all she had was like a way of writing letters and being smart because again, you cannot, like with Mary Stewart is something else, but like, you know, she crossed her letter to make sure that no one would, you know, add anything to her own words when she was writing to her sister. And even when you read her letters, a few years ago, I gave a paper that I've never published about um, the difference between Mary Stewart and Elizabeth Stewart as prisoners 
Elizabeth was extremely, extremely, extremely humble, extremely obedient. She knew that Mary the first had the power of taking her life. So that can be explained. And a lot of people have told me that. Yeah, that can be explained that she was a princess. Mary Stuart was a queen. But I would argue that Mary Stuart lost her her kingdom, you know, uh, after 1568. So in a way, the fact that she was still like, she, she was not really humble, kind of like annoyed the person who had all the power in a way. And, and Elizabeth didn't play that game. She was really, really smart. Like she was like, I, I am your subject. She didn't try to play the card, I am your sister. She tried a bit, like we, we share dad, we share blood. But she was more or less, I am your obedient, your humble and obedient subject and sister. But which is something that must have appeased, you know, kind of Mary. And um, and then, as you said, like, so obviously at some point, like Mary was like, OK, let's get her out of the tower. Uh, she has suffered enough. And then um, but she was in house arrest in Hatfield. And obviously all our correspondence was like red. And um, and again, Elizabeth was really smart. And you have to remember that there was no way she would she would know. Like, OK, Mary was 37, but she didn't know for sure that Mary would have no kids and that Mary would like would not reign for a very long time. She could reign for 30 years. She could reign for 20. She had no idea. So she played the game of like, you know, of obedience again, of humility and obedience. And I cannot stress that enough because I want, I really want to, to kind of make a contrast yeah. with the, you know, years and what happens next. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and I think you've painted a very, a very intriguing picture there. Now, we've talked quite a bit about power. Power has come up a lot, and it is, of course, a prominent theme throughout the story of these women and throughout the whole period, really. So I wanted to ask you about general views at the time about women in power and, and what was thought of about it then. And also, do we know what Elizabeth herself thought about the subject? Well, yes and no. So that's a very good question. That's a very um, also difficult question in many ways. First of all, they were living and we are living. And I'm not going to, you know, do not say to, to appease some, some people. We live in a patriarchal society even today. And even today, women have to fight for minimum equality. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to go into that because that, that could, that, that could go on, I could go on and on. But for Elizabeth, it's even more true. It was extremely patriarchal. There were a lot of misogynistic views and pamphlets and books printed. One of those was obviously John um, Knox, um, you know, the, the trumpet against the role of women, something. Um, and he was um, adamant that women were unfit to rule. He said that it was an abomination that women should rule over men. But he said that because he, he explained himself that it was against Mary de Guise in Scotland, Mary Stuart in France and possibly in Scotland. It was against Catherine de Medici, but it was not again. It was in 1558, 1559. It was not against Elizabeth. And it, he said, I even started writing when Mary I was also queen of England. So it, it was against Catholic women. Elizabeth was not really impressed. She was still like, well, you still wrote that I was unfit to rule, like, you know, um, that it's an abomination. It's monstrous for women. So that's, that's the views of women in power. I think it was a real struggle for men to accept it. I think that you also have something amazing happened in the 16th century. And you have um, the book of Sarah Griswood. I don't know if I pronounced oh, yes, her name yeah. right. Sarah Griswood, yeah. 
yeah, uh, games, games of queens. And it's where you realize how many queens have ruled in Europe during that time. You have obviously, like if we take early, you know, 16th century, we have obviously Isabel of Castile, Marguerite de Valois. We have Louise of Savoie because, I mean, sometimes people like cannot forget that Francis I would have never been Francis I without his mother, Louise of um, Savoie, not with uh, Baudemont, like so it's another Louise. We have Catherine de Medici, obviously. We have Elizabeth I. We have, uh, you know, Margaret Tudor, we, you know, all these kind of queens, all like um, Margaret Beaufort, like all these powerful women who had at some point some power, one way or another. Margaret of Austria, you know, um, governor of the Spanish Netherlands. You have also obviously um, Isabel, Clara, Eugenia, who's going to be governor of the, or co-governor at first, and then governor herself of the Spanish Netherlands, daughter of Philip II. All I'm saying is like during that that sixth century, we had Mary Stuart, obviously Marie de Guise, obviously. Like we have so many women in power, and that created a problem. That created a problem. That created like people were like, oh my god, like, <laughs> and too many women. But they were, when I said they were in power, they were not equal in the way they had power. Because I, do, I think there's a big difference when you're regent, when you're concert, when you're regnant. So we don't have that many queen regnant. We, we have some, but we don't have that many. Obviously, we're Mary the first, Mary Stuart, Elizabeth. But, you know, they're not that, you know, that many. And Catherine de Medici was never queen regnant. So, you know, like, and Elizabeth loved reminding her um, of that. Um, but she did it subtly. Like, she didn't say, you know, you're fucking shit and I'm better than you. But, you know, I'm pretty sure she would have, like, face to face, but she didn't, she didn't do it in letters. So for Elizabeth, she was really well aware of women were seen unfit to rule. However, she was also, she was not taking it. And the way she's done it, Elizabeth was not a feminist. She didn't fight for women's power. She fought for her own power. She was, I am not an ordinary woman. I'm an extraordinary one. And because I am extraordinary, you have to respect me. And so that's very different from, you know, like trying to, to say, but all women can rule. No, she didn't believe that at all. Like she, she believed that only, you know, I think she, and she believed that in a way she believed that as well for, for men, because, you know, when she refused like to, um, well, when in the end she didn't marry and didn't have, you know, um, children, she said, you would have never known that because he, this ch- child came from me, that he would have been good. So it's not because you're a man. It's not because you're you're from a queen or a king that you're going to be a good ruler. And I thought it was absolutely brilliant that someone in 16th century said that, you know, uh, outright. But more importantly, you know, when I said that John Knox said that it was monstrous for women to rule. And he said, because, you know, the head is Jesus Christ. So the head is the man and the feet is the woman. So it's monstrous for women, you know. To, to, to direct, you know, the, the men because and to govern over the men. And Elizabeth made a, a direct reference to that in 1566 to her parliament. I love this speech, maybe more than I love the Tilbury speech, you know, where she said, I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and of a king of England too. Well, she said even better than that. She said, when she said she received a petition to marry by her members of parliament, she said, isn't it monstrous? that the feet, you guys, should direct the head, me. Saying that, in a way, the woman 
was led and why she did and for her it was not as a woman it was as a monarch when she was the monarch she was king and queen of england and i think that's when you know we we go then to the topic of marriage quite nicely here because here we have a love for power here we have like a love for her own role authority and and i don't think it was just love for power for power power meant security and then you have to remember she was three years old when she lost everything three years old she saw so many women dying at her father's court she's then she then saw like Catherine parr she read she was do you see what I mean? and and so in a way she was like power is the only thing that can protect you when you don't have it shut your mouth but once you have it keep it keep it at all costs and marrying someone means giving up on some power surrender your power to someone else and i think that i think that's a that's a big thing it was a very big thing for elizabeth so much to reflect on there that's so interesting she obviously saw security in the power which is yeah, it's fascinating. Now, I want to just ask you a little bit more about the the marriage situation. Obviously, her advisors felt it was integral for her to marry. She had to marry. There was there was no other sort of choice. They couldn't imagine a different option for her. Was this because of what you've been saying that the, that the men believed women weren't apt to rule, weren't able to rule for whatever reason, or were there other reasons to do with um, security and? and forming alliances? I think it's a combination of the two. I think some of them felt like she could not rule on her own. And they also thought we need kind of a security through an alliance because it's always been done before, right? Uh, But the truth is, with the question of marriage, what's very interesting is that I do believe that the counselors at some point, there's a turning point where they like the fact that she's single. Because think about it, <laughs> who she's going to each time she needs advice, not her husband. She's always coming to them. And so you have this different dynamic where there's almost like there were some works, which I don't, I disagree with, where, where people would say that even William Cecil were like almost in charge of the country. And it might be true for some, you know, for something that happened. And it's true that he wrote lots of the letters. He was, you know, very much involved in the decisions, uh, decision making. But at the end of the day, I would argue that he would not have been able to do anything without the consent of Elizabeth. And you can see that with the marriage question, because at the end of the day, she did exactly what she wanted and when she wanted it. And it's something that, you know, he could he could be annoyed with her, but she would scream back at him. She would scream at Francis Walsingham. She would scream at, you know, obviously with the Robert Dudley, uh, you know, Earl of Leicester, like the, the relationship is even more like tumultuous and, and scandalous. Some people would say, oh, but the marriage question is also because she was in love with Robert and because she couldn't marry him, she chose not to marry. I think it's a bit too simplistic. I don't think that's, I don't think that's true. Do I think she had feelings for Robert Dudley? 100%. I really believe they loved each other, both of them, you know. And I think it was an impossible love that must have like really hurt them. But I think she loved power more and I think he loved power more. And I think she knew that. I think she also knew that he loved her, but not entirely for who she was. And this is something actually, this is something that she always said, you know, when when there's all the marriage negotiations, which I know really well now with with the French, you know, I mean, it, it dragged on for 
over a decade, um, she, you know, all, all, all Catherine de Medici's children were pushed on Elizabeth, apart from Francis II, but uh, all of them were pushed on Elizabeth first. And each time Elizabeth would say, I will not marry a man that I, do, you know, that I can't see, so they need to, to meet me. But it's not the only thing she said. She said, I will not marry a man who would not love me as a woman. So she was very clear. She, she basically was telling Catherine and her sons, I know you want me for my throne. I'll only marry if you want me for me. And I think that's also, in a way, the struggle of Elizabeth's life. And that's why I think that, you know, sometimes she said very early on that she had no desire to marry. Like by 1559, you have Gilles de Noailles, a French ambassador, who's writing to uh, Henry II of France saying, she'll, she said she'll never marry. And her all her privy councillors are completely in, in despair because of, of what she just said. And I think that's part of, of truth. But, you know, I, I think it's not black and white here. I think it's more or less great. I think she, she would have considered it if there was like a real someone who was, who was basically in love with her, for her, like a real connection. And I think she never got that connection. And the only time she might have had this type of connection, I think, was with uh, Francis, Duke of Anjou. I think it was more a friendship one. I think it was more like, um, I, I don't think there was like the attraction because he was not attractive and she said it many times. But I think she, he was charming and I think she liked his spirits and I think she find him funny. But ex they exchanged so many, so many jewelry, like so many rings and, and gold and, and, and gems. And yeah, I think there was like a connect that was um, beyond looks, but that was not enough. And also by that time, Elizabeth like, when he agreed to see, when she agreed to see me, he agreed to see her in 1579, she was no longer really young. And I think she knew there's no way I, I can carry a child to turmoil. There's no way there's no, like the risk are gonna be so low for me. And I think there's still the question about Elizabeth knowing, I think she was extremely scared of childbirth. So I think that was another, re like, and she always said, there's no reason for me to get married if it's not to give an heir to the throne. So, she was, the, do you see what I mean? And that's where then she said, well, you worry so much about my children, but maybe none of them are going to be good. It's not because, yeah. you know, and, and so I think it's really, really, I think it's really brilliant, really. Yeah, and something you said earlier on just really struck me when you were saying that you think Elizabeth did exactly what Elizabeth wanted to do. That just reminded me so much of her father. I actually... I'm of the opinion that Henry VIII also did exactly what Henry VIII wanted to do. I know there's different arguing points of that he was, you know, easy to kind of persuade, et cetera. But I think even in those situations, he was orchestrating the situation for it to appear perhaps that he was listening. But even Chapuis at one point, and this isn't, this isn't word for word, but he said something along the lines of he does exactly what he wants to do. And I find that that's interesting that you're saying Elizabeth's the same. So, you know, something perhaps similar to there her were, father there. There were lions. Have you ever tried to tame a lion? It doesn't work well, does it? I really think that in then, you know, and I know exactly what you mean by this debate about Henry VIII, you know, being the maker of the reformation or everything. Like when there's a, and it's the same with Elizabeth, when you think that there's a way where they're influenced, it's because they agreed. Exactly. They agree exactly right. with, with what the councillor was saying. So they were like, that's actually not that idea. I agree with that. And for Elizabeth, when she played the games of marriage, I mean, she drove everyone completely crazy, especially with the French, because it's the longest, you know, marriage negotiations with the French. She drove them 
all crazy. I mean, can you imagine a woman saying yes, no, yes, no? I mean, in 1581, she's literally, or 1580, no, I think it's 1581, she's literally telling Francis, Duke of Anjou, I will, in front of everyone, I will marry you. She kissed him, I think, on the lips, I think. Um, and she's like, I will or give him a ring. Like she, she was like, I will marry you. I will marry you. She, she, she's doing that to piss off everyone else. She's because at that time, then they don't, they no longer want her to marry him. You know, like, and so she's like, I will marry you. And then the next day, she's like, actually, I've changed my mind. And I'm just like, oh, oh, <laughs> oh my god, like I can't, <laughs> I can't imagine the chicks of it. And what's so funny is that in English sources, the marriage negotiations with French France, like died in 1581 early 1582 but the french don't fucking give up <laughs> <laughs> you, you have Catherine still trying and trying and she's like no she's not we're so you, can you imagine spending and also i felt so bad for francis because it meant that he never married yeah because he pursued he, he was barking the wrong train <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> well, she must have she must have infuriated so many people and they had to remain polite which i love that and she did whatever she wanted to do. And she understood politics, sometimes I think even better than a privy councillors, because she knew exactly what game to play and how to play it. She was extremely good with games of power. Catherine de' Medici too. You know, and, and, and again, you know, the, the mask fell when she became, you know, like, then you thought I would be like a, a very easy pawn. Can you imagine when, you know, when you know someone growing up and you see them like so obedient, so, you know, humble, so discreet, you think, oh my God, this one is going to become queen. It's so easy to, to do whatever I want. Do you, do you see I me mean, like to grab power basically through her? The girl is 25. The girl has lost a mother when she was three. The girl has been the Tower of London. Yeah. Fucking think for a minute. Someone who's that resilient. It's a game. She's not going to be easy to, you know, to, to to manipulate she was not easy to manipulate at all i love elizabeth so much just <laughs> again she had many flaws she had many flaws but boy like what a woman what a woman extraordinary of course there were the religious struggles during her reign and i want to ask you how you think these struggles between protestant catholic how they shaped elizabeth's reign and also was she tolerant of other religions? That's a very good question. Again, I think the struggles between Protestantism and Catholicism is about power, is about which group in the country, which group of councillors, which group of people are going to gain power. I would say that Elizabeth, deep down, as a person, didn't really care if you were Protestant or Catholic. She cared about one thing. I think that's a theme of this podcast. She cared, she cared about her power. And she cared about people being obedient to her. So as long as you were not obedient, then she would easily lose her shit and, you know, and be against you. But I don't think that as a person, she, you know, she said, there's only one Jesus Christ. That says it all. She said it. Why are we fighting? We all believe in the same thing. And even, you know, what's very interesting is because you asked me if she was tolerant of other religions. She's, she's one of the you know, of the few European monarchs who had actually quite good relationships with Muslim monarchs. So like with the Moroccan Sultan, with the Ottoman Sultan, 
um, I'm not saying that they were best friends, but I'm saying, and obviously it comes from the fact that they also uh, saw her as an enemy of Philip II, and Philip II was enemy number one. So, you know, uh, so I think that's how they they, they became kind of like, um, maybe not allies, but like they were like on the same side. But, but I think Elizabeth was too pragmatic to have, you know, to not be tolerant. And it really depends on what you call being tolerant, because Mary Stuart, for example, was also tolerant of other religion. I don't think she really, as long as she could, you know, practice her religion, I don't think she really cared that there was a reformation in Scotland. Though having said that, having said that she also wrote letters saying that she wanted Scotland and England to become Catholic and speak French and Spanish. So that's a bit, you know, we don't have that with Elizabeth, for example. But with Elizabeth, I think there's a shift in her reign. I think 1570, when she's excommunicated by the Pope, and it's, and there, honestly, there are so many plots against her. You literally, you have no idea, because we only talk about the ones that are known, like, you know, a Throckmorton plot, the Perry plot, like Babington plot, like the Ridolfi plot, the Northern Rebellion. But you have to imagine that for all of those that I've just named, that are like the main ones and that everyone knows about, or not everyone, but, you know, like... <laughs> people should know about and um, I was really shocked but you know when you look at all the manuscripts and um, how many other men were sent from the continent to kill her to poison her so you have she was living in constant fear of being shot or poisoned and and unfortunately, they were Catholics. These guys were saying they were Catholics. So did she, it's not that she didn't like Catholic. I don't think she hated Catholic people. I think at some point she was just, just like very little trust because there were so many that were saying that she should die. So many rumors as well of her like uh, having children and hiding them and, you know, uh, being with uh, Robert Dudley and, and all of that stuff. That, that, mostly come, like came from as well Catholic, you know, uh, Englishmen. So I think she got really annoyed with that. And at some point, so when, when the Puritans and the, you know, the hard Protestants of, a, of the country and the, of our privy councillors who had an agenda against the Catholics, they used the fear, the plots to really, like to convince her to make things, you know, harder for, the Catholic, and that's where you know I would say she, Elizabeth always did what she wanted, but on that part she was ruled by fear, and we all know that fear is a very very bad advisor, right? Because in a way you can antagonize even people, and she antagonized more people, and she antagonized more Catholics, and she you know. But you know I do believe that deep down she was tolerant, but at some point she couldn't afford to be. Yeah, so when it was about her security. And fear of losing power, obviously. Again, we come yeah. back to the theme of power. So given everything we've said and that you've you know, said several times that you love her flaws as well as her qualities or perhaps more than her qualities, do you th- what do you think of her as a ruler? Do you think she was effective? Do you think she deserves the, the Gloriana reputation? Do you think she was a fair ruler? I'd love to hear your thoughts on those things. Uh, you know, it's funny as well because when the more you research and the more you read and the more you study a historical character like Elizabeth you know where the less you know what you think okay I know I'm not making it but for example if you I I know what you mean actually I do yeah Yeah. because if you had asked me that question I think five years ago we just said oh my god Elizabeth you know it's the greatest you know uh, queen or monarch and and I and I always 
but I've had many discussions now with other people who have different views than mine, and I still respect them and love them. And that's going to be uh, Professor Olivette Hotel, who's a dear friend of mine, and who blames Elizabeth for, um, rightly so, for, for the start of slavery in the 16th century. It's something that we don't really discuss. It's something that we don't really... I mean, there are works on that, obviously. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that people have never worked on this. Of course they have. But, you know, it's not really in the mainstream. You know, it's not, we, we don't really want to discuss that. We don't really want to discuss Elizabeth and Ireland either. But when you look at this, you can see that she had many flaws and that she made very poor decisions. And what I love is that I had this discussion with Olivette when she was, or Professor Hotel, when she was like telling me, but... Um, I do understand why you love her. You know, we had a very, we're friends. So we had a very like one-to-one mm -hmm. -one discussion on this, but she said, I think she could have done better. She deserved to do better because she had the opportunity to do better. Because I was explaining, yeah, but she, the reason why she started slavery, the reason why she started, the, you know, the, the colonization of Ireland, which was a failure, by the way. I mean, like there is no empire under Elizabeth I. There's, there's an attempt to it. There's no empire. There's no colonization of Ireland. She's losing all the time. Um, you know, so I think that, and with slavery, it's also not the, the, the big business that it's gonna happen later on. But all of it, again, is triggered by fear. It's triggered by fear of the Spanish. It's triggered, it's triggered also by her desire to compete with Philip II. I'm not justifying it. I am not justifying it. I'm just saying that it comes from, again, insecurity and the obsession of um, keeping power. She doesn't understand why Ireland is not recognizing her as queen. She doesn't, you know, she, she doesn't want Philip to become so strong that he's going to, you know, make things very difficult for, for England, you know, so because we all, always talk about 1588, but there are wars that continues after that. And she's in, in England is in constant threat of, of, um, of Spain. So, you know, um, her privateers, she's never saying, I want you to get me, uh, you know, slaves. She's never interested, but she's telling them do whatever it takes to get power. So like when they get like, when you get a cargo of slaves from a Spanish or Portuguese, you're obviously removing money from, you, you like, you, you're undermining the power and, and, and the wealth of the Spanish empire. And Elizabeth is like, yeah, yeah, do, you know, do that. Like, it's, just, it's totally fine, you know. Um, so I think that, you know, I still love her to bits for everything she was, for the mistakes she made. I still see her in many ways as the greatest because of her flaws and because I can imagine, I don't know what, I think it's because I have read so many letters, I can almost imagine the woman behind the queen and she was not perfect. And I think for a long time I thought she was, but she was not perfect. She didn't fight for the women. She didn't, you know, she, she but, but that, that's a concept as well. What, what would I want her to fight for the woman? She was not a feminist. Feminism didn't exist. But I think she was genuine. And I feel, I feel for her. I admire her strength. And I think I also love her so much because I've, it sounds crazy, but I've learned from her. This, those women of power in the 16th century, 17th century, they taught you lessons, life lessons. It's just a question of finding them and of you like appropriating them for your own life. But Anne Boleyn can teach you so much about, you know, life itself.
and love and power and you know falling out of power and Elizabeth do the same and what I think I love as well so much about her is that at the end of her life when she I, I love that sometimes she just doesn't give a shit I love it I absolutely love it she received an ambassador she was like it, it was uh, 1596 probably like it's in my book like I should remember that date but so it's the end of her life and she's a She's half naked. He can see everything, all her wrinkles. She doesn't care. He can see. He can see her, her bum. She she doesn't give. She, you know, she was probably going through menopause. So she was really hot. She was. Oh, I'm very hot. So she was half naked in front of him. Didn't give a shit. And he was still like he was a French ambassador. Still, wow, what a woman! Like she, and she was so smart. She knew how to play the games of power. She just knew how to. But I think she paid the price for it. She ended up alone. She was betrayed so many times. She ended, I think that's what, I feel like I feel for her because of that. Sorry, like it was a very long answer. No, and so powerful, really so powerful. And what I find remarkable, and I find it remarkable about her mother as well, is that our relationship with them continues evolving. It's something, as you say, the more you get to know them almost the harder it is to pinpoint exactly the what's drawing us to them but the relationship continues to evolve and I I just find that incredible with women that lived 500 years ago I agree it's it's almost like magical in a way do you see what I mean like there's 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 a mystery around it there is I think there is a mystery around it and I wanted to also ask you I know this question's difficult and I know that it's a complex question but in terms of her accomplishments as queen, what do you think we should remember? What are the ones that, that kind of pop up in your mind when you think of Elizabeth's reign? Well, I would say obviously the the victory of the Armada was like something that we have to that we have to remember because no one believed that England would win. So I think just for that, you know, it's it's quite remarkable. I mean, I know it, it, you know, in a way it was the weather and everything, but still it's quite remarkable that, you know, it, 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 but she should be remembered for a woman who ruled on her own for 44 years, who didn't let the patriarchy dictate her life, who in a way, you know, tried to do her mother proud as well. You know, like, you know what, you have to think about it. You have to think about Anne Boleyn. When you think about Elizabeth ruling as well, you think about Anne Boleyn, who believed that her daughter. She, I think, I think Anne Boleyn had, you know, strong faith in the ability of her daughter, which is crazy because her daughter—they've known each other three years. Yeah. And yet, I think that she saw the potential of her daughter at a very young age. And I think Elizabeth needs to be remembered for that. She needs to be remembered for a woman who ruled on her own for forty-four years, and she made mistakes. But she also like she also tried to do her best. Honestly, she also tried. She, you know, at first she really tried to to bring both, you know, Protestantism and Catholicism together. She avoided so many wars. You have to understand, like, obviously everything went batshit, you know, in fifteen eighteen. But but before that, there's no in, invasion of, it, of of England, and and it could have happened. And it didn't happen because of her. she knew how to play the games of power and she was really good at them. I think she needs to be remembered for that, for an intelligence, 
full sense of humor, like um, full of temper, a lot of temper. I love it. I mean, I'm not like that, but I wish I was sometimes, you know, like when you tell someone to, you know, it would be, she was a woman who ruled on her own for 44 years in the 16th century. There's no one like her. Extraordinary. Thank you. And I always, I, I so enjoy our conversations because something you said that you love about uh, Elizabeth, which is that she's genuine and Estelle, I love that about you too and your enthusiasm. So it's always a pleasure, but I have one more last question I promise for you. And this is just what we're calling for this segment, a Tudor Queen's takeaway. So something for our listeners to go off and explore after the show that maybe might deepen their understanding about Elizabeth or any other queen or queenship in general. So do you have a takeaway for us? You know, um, I've been thinking about that and I do have a few. Unfortunately, it's not going to be on Elizabeth, I think. Oh, that's okay. Well, I'm going to have to, like I, I wrote recently some something about Queen's Know Best on uh, History Extra. Um, it's online, so very um, easy to access to. Because I discussed this, but I also discussed Anjinga of Angola who was a queen who was ruling, you know, Angola um, in the 17th century and fighting against, well, at the end of 16th century and 17th century, um, was fighting against the Portuguese. And I think she deserves as well to be to be remembered. So I'm discussing um, the, the survival lessons of queens, and I think it, it would be interesting to your, to your listeners. But also, I would like to recommend a book. It's a recent one, I think, it came out last year, The Afterlife of Anne Boleyn by Stephanie Rousseau and I know it is in many ways like I mean it's an academic book but the amount of research and how Anne Boleyn was remembered after her death in different centuries is really really worth checking out it's it's very very interesting and I think understanding the impact of of those queens the impact that they've had not not just now but right after their death centuries after the day, you know, and, and in different ways. I think it's really worth checking. I think it would really interest your audience, hopefully. What fantastic commendations. And I hope everyone will have a look at your article and that book as well. That sounds wonderful. And Estelle, thank you so much for talking to you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking with you. And yeah, thank you so, so much, Natalie. I'm very grateful. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions, or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music